If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. This is the Independence Day special from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. There are two of our founding fathers who are often mentioned in the same breath, but rarely side by side. And the stories of their revolutionary lives make for an interesting tale of the differences in the men who came together in 1776, both before, of course, and after. Edward J. Larson is the Pulitzer Prize winning author who has made a specialty of the period, including the book Franklin and Washington, The Founding Partnership. Good to have you with us. How are you? Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. Before we get into details, in 1790, John Adams, of all people, said that the history of the revolution would pretty much boil down to George Washington and Benjamin Franklin doing everything. So what did he mean? He meant that they were larger than life, even in their own life, and legendary already, because Washington had led the troops into the successful victory in a impossible situation. No colony had ever successfully revolted from its mother country. And uh, England at the time, Britain at the time, was the most powerful nation in the world. And here were the rough-hewn American colonies that Franklin had not only co-written the Declaration of Independence, but then he went to to France as the diplomat who was able to secure the support that was absolutely essential to that victory. Money kept flowing in from France when France didn't have money because Frank because of Franklin's influence. And then he arranged for the the Navy, French Navy and the French Army that ultimately led to the success at Yorktown. Indeed, at Yorktown, there were more French troops than there were American troops. And that led to the victory uh, over Cornwallis. And uh, then Franklin wrote the peace, wrote the peace treaty that got us the West, which we had not won in the war, he got us the West to the Mississippi River. So the accomplishments of these two people, but also they were they were important because like Adams, and this is why Adams was always a bit snippy, was a bit snippy. Adams was an early advocate of independence, but so were Washington and Franklin. Uh, and that's interesting and important because, you know, we feel this now probably in a new way. Most of the time, history is pretty stagnant. It's just one day after another, and it's really tough for any leader or any social movement to actually initiate and achieve change. But there are other times when the whole world seems to be, you're like you're on broken ice pads and everything seems dynamic. Everything seems like it can change. Well, that was the time back then. It's a time we're feeling right now, maybe I felt it in the 60s, where fundamental things can change. And in the late uh, 1760s, in the aftermath of the French and Indian War, that's how everything felt after the Stamp Act crisis. 
And because of the Stamp Act crisis, some people realized that while before there was a symbiotic relationship between England and the colonies, both prospered working together. The Stamp Act crisis and what followed, the Townsend Act, the Tea Acts, things like that, made it realize that England would not go back to that old way, that England was going to make America subservient. And Franklin and Washington were two people who had profited greatly under the old system. They had, they had risen to the top, as it were, and yet they realized early, as Adams, who was a bit of more of a natural rebel, realized that there was no going back, that the choice was either dependency or independency for liberty, for economic rights, for religious freedom. It was dependency or independency. And Franklin and Washington, like Adams and some others, realized that. And therefore, they went with the change and became engines of that change that led to our country. There were differences, of course, on what that change would be. And one of the major ones was slavery, where the two men who were joined at the hip in so many different ways really parted in their beliefs. Uh, Franklin arrives in Philadelphia in 1723. At that time, even Quakers owned slaves. And really, over the next half century of his life, his views change greatly. By just 1729, he's publishing abolitionist views in his paper. Part of this is the difference in background of these people. Franklin was an indentured servant. He was essentially a white slave. Uh, he was an indentured servant. It's not as bad as chattel slavery, but there really was not chattel slavery in the North as there was in the South, where really the, the black slaves were just treated like animals. Um, in the North, you had indentured whites. And Franklin was that when he was young. He came from a, uh, he was indentured as a printer. And he fled that. And he never really forgot that. He fled uh, Boston, went to Philadelphia, started his own business because you could leave, um, you could escape it. And he was white. And then as he watched the situation, the Quaker church began turning slowly. Uh, Benjamin um, Law was an early advocate, for example, began turning against slavery. And Franklin, who was not a Quaker, picked up on that, printed their literature, and then began, as he became wealthier, began financially supporting uh, schools for African-American children, both enslaved ones and free ones. And he then went on the board for this and he observed these children. And by the 1850s, he, he had actually, and this is truly remarkable, um, broken from the general racism. He was writing and saying, these children are no different than white children. They can learn as well. They have just as much ability. And once he broke that, it, you know, it was only a matter of time that he became president of the first abolitionist society in the, in the, the United States. You briefly mentioned a man that he made who was nicknamed Little Benjamin because he was four feet tall, uh, an abolitionist who became quite a, at first divisive figure among Quakers in Pennsylvania because he was a fervent, fervent abolitionist, having seen a man in Barbados commit suicide rather than continue to submit to slavery. And he apparently became quite a figure in Franklin's life. Franklin even published his book. He did. And he was an amazing man. One thing about him, 
is he recognized agency or or it, among the African-Americans himself. He was not one of these people who says white people are going to give these black people. He was realized that the slaves were going to take had agency themselves. That's what Franklin realized too. That's what he was talking about. These children are just as able as our children, just as able as white children. Um, and so uh, Franklin uh, published his work when other people weren't, and he did this bench. <laughs> he did some amazing things. I mean, for one thing, he would, at times, he would, at one time at least, I think it was more often than that, he kidnapped the children of leading Quakers in Philadelphia so that they know what Africans in in Africa felt when their children were kidnapped by by slavers, and of course he returned the children, but he wanted them to feel what these other people are feeling. Now Franklin publishes work, and eventually the reason we have a picture of him is um, his wife, Franklin's wife, who was even stronger on this issue than Franklin, arranged for a picture and got a picture of Benjamin and hung it in their house. And Franklin said, well, where'd you get that? And he really enjoyed it. So it was a uh, it was a relationship. It helped Franklin grow. But then Franklin became a global leader on this issue. He was in regular communication with abolitionists, leading abolitionists in England and in France, uh, and a promoter of the uh, ending of slavery. Now, while Franklin has a picture of Benjamin Lay in his house, Washington in 1754 inherited Mount Vernon, which had 18 slaves. 20 years later, he owned 100 slaves. Apparently, sometimes privately, he would express sympathy to ending slavery, but privately is pretty much as far as he would go. Private, privately was as far as he would go. Uh, he agonized about it to an extent. Uh, Jefferson may have agonized agonized it about it more. You have to go back and forth and think about it. But what we had the situation is just as in the after the Stamp Act Congress, you could feel those sheets of ice moving under you. And there was a there was a potential for change during the revolutionary era, after the Declaration of Independence, during the Revolutionary War and up through the Constitutional Convention, there was a sense and abolitionists expressed it freely that there is a possibility to end slavery. This institution that seems fixed can be defeated. So slavery was almost banned from the beginning of the United States of America. What happened? Ed Larson, the author of Franklin Washington, will have that part of the story coming up. This is the Independence Day special from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to the Independence Day special from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. We've been talking to historian Ed Larson, the author of Franklin and Washington, about the battle to outlaw slavery just as our nation began. And he was just getting to the part on why that did not happen. During the Revolutionary Era, after the Declaration of Independence, during the Revolutionary War, and up through the Constitutional Convention, there was a sense, and abolitionists expressed it freely, that there is a possibility to end slavery. This institution that seems fixed can be defeated. Um, Now, this was possible because cotton hadn't yet come 
slavery wasn't quite as integrated into the American economy as it would be by 1800. Lots of people, abolitionists especially, Quaker abolitionists especially, but also some of Washington's closest aides, people like Lafayette especially, but also Hamilton, Alexander Hamilton, also Lawrence, um, one of his most beloved aides. Uh, these people began urging Washington, we have an opportunity here, and you as the leader of the Continental Army, you can make a difference because we can get rid of slavery. Set an example, free your slaves, announce your opposition to slavery. Some other revolutionary leaders were doing that. Um, Franklin, of course, was advocating the end of slavery and uh, John Adams opposed slavery. And so there seemed to be a chance. Many of the letters to him said felt there was a chance. Now, here's a chance, you know, you have these moments like we're in today where radical change can be made, possibly, but it takes leadership and it takes a mass movement. And Washington couldn't quite bring himself. He would reply in these letters, well, I wish this institution had never existed. We'd be better off if it never existed. He'd go that far. Um, but he not only had his own slaves, but when he married his wife, who was a very wealthy widow with a son, with two, with two children, actually, um, brought with her an enormous number of slaves. He had about 100. Now there's uh, 300. And she never relented on slavery. So he had his wife pulling him the other way. She kept enslaved her half-sisters, um, uh, or almost certainly they were half-sisters, and also grandchildren, uh, uh, children from her son. Um, and so he had his wife pulling him the other way. He had his own economic interests pulling him the other way. And he also truly believed that the United States had to stay together. And he legitimately feared that, um, though historians disagree, that you needed to keep the option of slavery. By this time, the northern states had mostly ended slavery, led by Franklin's uh, Pennsylvania, which was the first state to abolish slavery by statute. Uh, uh, court order had done the same thing in Massachusetts, in Adams's Massachusetts. Um, he thought that he feared that North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia would break off from the Union um, if slavery wasn't continued. And he treasured the Union. He thought the Union. So he had these three reasons weighing him down, and it just kept him from acting during his life, not at his death, of course, because he freed his slaves in his will, but it kept him from acting during his life. And there were many people, including some very close friends, who believed that there had been an opportunity. And of course, by the time Washington died in 1799, that window was passed. We were no longer a revolutionary nation. Cotton had come around and slavery was truly integrated into the very fiber of the South. By the end of their lives, you can really see the difference. Franklin is in his last years heading an abolition society and um, provided for the freedom of anybody with him for their freedom in his will. Uh, Washington 
had hidden his intention of actually freeing his slaves upon his death. But as you mentioned, his wife, Martha Custis Washington, was against any such thing, and he changed his will to keep them until she died. You know, I don't even know if his wife knew his will was going to free the slaves. He had drafted two wills. All we know for a fact is that as he would lie on his deathbed, he asked the two wills to be brought to him. He ripped up one and had it destroyed, so we don't know what was in the other. But the one he didn't rip up had the freeing of slaves. It's easy to speculate that one had the provision and the other didn't. Um, he probably had never told his, um, his, his wife what he was going to do. Uh, and uh, it provided that his, but it did provide that on, his, on her death, his slaves would be freed and provided for. Clearly, this is something that he had agonized over. We know from his letters he had agonized over, but by then, truly, the window that this would be an example that could lead the nation was passed. And as a result, it had very little influence. And later, when as slavery grew as a dividing issue, Franklin was always held up, along with others, by the northern side. And Washington, even though Washington was still beloved in the north, uh, Washington was always upheld in the south as one of the presidents who owned slaves. And indeed, the Great Seal of the Confederacy, the center of the Great Seal of the Confederacy, is a picture of George Washington. Franklin, of course, never becomes president doesn't have quite the same effect on this part of our history, even though he petitioned Congress from his deathbed, saying that the blessings of liberty ought rightfully to be administered without distinction of color to all descriptions of people. But Franklin's legacy in that regard doesn't take hold. Franklin, of course, was a polymath. He could do everything. He was America's greatest diplomat. He was America's greatest inventor. He was America's greatest scientist. He was, he was America's greatest humorist. He was all these things. And he wore masks, different masks. I mean, he was Silence Do Good at one time, and he was Richard Saunders at other times. He did so many things that his legacy was very complex. He was, a, he called himself a Midland man, a middle-class man, but he became very wealthy. Uh, he, he wrote about that. Um, he was a moralist. And therefore, his, his legacy is so complex, it's not as simple as most people in American history are, are remembered for one thing or one type of thing. And Franklin, there's so much there to digest that his anti-slavery activities never became that prominently recognized. Not that they weren't known at the time. Certainly, he was, uh, he was head of the abolitionist society. He, as you say, he advocated... Uh, he petitioned Congress to end slavery. He wanted them to go much further in the Constitutional Convention. Uh, sure, he was he was active in all those things, but you could pick up different issues from Franklin. And the message: what stands out most? Well, it depends about what Frank part of Franklin you're looking at. But I think people do recognize, just as with uh, John Adams or. Um, or Lafayette or Alexander Hamilton, that this was part of their view, but it never became 
the, the, the soul image. It's not what you, when people think of Franklin, including myself, it's not what you think of first. And ultimately, Franklin was pragmatic. Um, he, there are different sorts of people. And his, his belief was that if we become independent from England, well, then we have a chance to deal with slavery then. So I'll make a concession on the Declaration of Independence. And his belief was that if we have a strong federal union, the Constitution, then and only then can we force these southern states eventually to free slaves. And so he he would, trying to figure things out, he realized, well, if I give now, well, at least we'll get a strong union. And he expressed these views. Um, then we can end it. So once the Constitutional Convention is approved, once the Constitution is approved, the Constitutional Convention stays together, the South stays with it, the states approve it with all the compromises in there. Well, the first thing he does, of course, is petition Congress to end, end slavery, or at least end the slave trade. He petitions them to do both. Um, and so uh, you can see what he's trying to do, uh, but it's it, he takes he's willing to take the long view and that uh, that pragmatic streak is just part of his very nature. It's how it was. It's how he. It's who he was. And um, we uh, we can't. I don't think we can judge him poorly for that, um, since he was since he had a goal, but he did fail on both of those in the sense that he went along with dropping those provisions from the Declaration of Independence, and he went along. He didn't support them, but he. He went along with the Electoral College and other things that that um, facilitated slavery. Edward J. Larson is the Pulitzer Prize winning author who has made quite a specialty of this period in our history, including the book Franklin and Washington, The Founding Partnership. Ed, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. You're listening to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. This is the Independence Day special from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. So let's find out some more about the Declaration of Independence that founded this great nation. Matthew Dennis is Professor Emeritus of History and Environmental Studies and author of the book Red, White, and Blue Letter Days, an American Calendar. And it's good to have you with us. How are you? I'm, I'm doing well, thanks. It's interesting to look at the original Declaration. It, it looks something like a sixth grader's homework. There's a lot of cross-outs. There's a lot of rewrites. Who was arguing for what? Well, you know, we have a sense of the Declaration as being authored by Thomas Jefferson. He was the main scribe, but in a way, it was a um, he was expressing much broader thoughts and currents and political discourse at the time. So uh, it makes sense, actually, that his draft, which he, you know, he, 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 uh, he, uh, he worked out with a committee to be um, subject to a larger discussion in the Continental Congress. And, you know, I think, I think even with most of, you know, a lot of those cross-outs and stuff, it was really, much of it was actually pretty stylistic. You know, it was, it was a way to make the message much more direct and understandable and clear, and in some cases to get rid of what might be, you know, kind of controversial uh, statements, ones that went too far that would lack, uh, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't necessarily convince the people uh, that were its main audience, which was basically the, United, the people of the United States and, of course, uh, a larger Atlantic world. 
Was this a political document trying to get the British attention for a change in the way they, they treat us? I mean, was everybody together that we were starting a new nation and totally breaking off? Well, you know, yeah, it's a, it, it's a, it's a political document, and it, and it has to be. You know, what, what it is, I mean, it's a really interesting uh, document in the way that it has changed over time, its meaning, and grown in importance in some ways. I mean, if you look at it really simply, it's a kind of divorce decree. We, uh, we are separating from uh, Great Britain, and we are becoming our own country. And so once, um, once it, it kind of uh, completes that statement, um, those words are kind of transformational. They, they, they say, once we say this, this is, the, this is the case. And in a way, then, after that, it becomes irrelevant. You know, people don't necessarily refer to, uh, you know, divorce decrees afterward. They, they, you know, they kind of look forward. They become irrelevant, and people, uh, people move on. But then we have this really interesting and curious preface, a really important one, actually, where um, we see the, uh, the authors and the Congress lay out broader principles about what uh, America is supposed to be. Um, you know, that it's um, dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Uh, that's Abraham Lincoln's uh, paraphrase later in the Gettysburg Address. And so it lays out these larger uh, basic principles um, that are, are kind of a, a mission statement for what the United States would be. So um, these were, had to be broad, they had to be persuasive, and they had to appeal to large numbers of Americans. So in a way, we see it, the, the Declaration that isn't just a document. It is. Um, but it becomes a kind of event in itself. <clears throat> what was really important in the last part of the Declaration is it's not just we declare, but we, uh, we publish. That is, um, in the 18th century sense of the word, to be made public. And so they declared quite explicitly that the Declaration should be distributed widely, it should be read out loud in public so that people could respond to it, affirm it. So let's talk about some of the fun stuff here. Let's talk about the celebrations of Independence Day. How did, how did this start to evolve into what we have now? Well, um, you know, Washington had to be, you know, uh, stately and subdued and all that. But, um, but really, if you look at um, the very beginning, you see statements by, say, uh, John Adams, second president of the United States, very important in the Continental Congress, um, writing to his, uh, you know, famously to his wife, Abigail, that this should be a festival uh, of celebration uh, forever. He's, he, writes, he writes that it should be celebrated by solemn acts of devotion to God Almighty, solemnized with pomp and parade, shows, games, sports, guns, bells, bonfires, and illuminations from one end of the continent to the other for this time forward forevermore. So, so what you see there is like a, a very interesting combination of all the things that we see in these celebrations, some really serious and solemn, some, you know, uh, frivolous and explosive. Is that, that's really the prescription that we see in 1776 itself for the rest of the celebrations throughout um, American history. I mean, the Declaration, as I said, you know, laid out these promises, equality, for example. And so the, de- the um, Fourth of July could be an occasion during these festivities for people to claim the promise that the Declaration of Independence seemed to offer. The, the abolition of slavery, for example, uh, equal rights for women, better uh, conditions and, and equal rights for workers. Uh, you see general strikes on the Fourth of July. Temperance, you know, the, 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 uh, the effort to ban alcohol as this, you know, um, as this evil, there would be these Fourth uh, of July celebrations where temperance would be the cause. So, you know, you have, it, it was a, an opportunity, um, and it was always, you know, kind of fraught that way. The center um, of an old-time, say, 19th century 
Fourth of July celebration would be the rereading of the Declaration of Independence, uh, parades, picnics, barbecues, all those things, and sometimes long-winded political speeches that were being, you know, kind of lampooned and people would be rolling their eyes. Matthew Dennis is Professor Emeritus of History and Environmental Studies. His book is Red, White, and Blue Letter Days, an American Calendar. Matthew, thank you for joining us. This is the Independence Day special from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to the Independence Day special from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. We celebrate many things on July 4th, almost all of them about our independence as a nation. But other things have happened on this day in the past. One of them is probably the most famous moment in sports history that has nothing at all to do with the outcome of a game or anything about a particular game at all. It was on July 4th, 1939, between games of a doubleheader that Lou Gehrig, who had found out that his career was over due to ALS, made a speech that is so revered by people who care nothing about baseball. It resulted in a hit movie with Gary Cooper that otherwise never would have been made. Jonathan Igg has written a number of books, including a recent biography of Muhammad Ali, titled simply Ali, A Life. He's also the author of the best book on Gehrig, The Luckiest Man, The Life and Death of Lou Gehrig. Good to have you with us. How are you? I'm fine. Thanks, Gil. July 4th, 1939 is when he says he is the luckiest man. But let's go back a bit and talk about Lou Gehrig, because Gehrig with Ruth was a little like Roger Maris with Mickey Mantle. Mickey loved the nightlife, was a heavy drinker, always in the spotlight, loved the spotlight, loved giving interviews. Gehrig used to go home, help his mom play ball with kids in the neighborhood. This was a shy guy. A very shy guy. And when they were on the road... And they were going out, having a good time. So the 1920s, the roaring 20s, the jazz age, Lou Gehrig would go back to his hotel room and read a book. He wanted no part of it. It was a very insecure, very shy guy. So for that kind of guy to make one of the most famous speeches, certainly in American sports, is is almost out of character. So let's come to 1939. He's already had a Hall of Fame career, though it was expected to go on for some more years yet. And after setting a record for consecutive games, he suddenly couldn't hit, couldn't catch. Balls were going past him, and he finally takes himself out of the lineup. What was going on with him? Well, his body was melting away, really. His muscles were disappearing. ALS was working on him for more than a year. He probably played the entire 1938 season with ALS, which is remarkable. One of the greatest achievements in athletic history, I think. But by 1939, he can't do it anymore. And he finally pulls himself out of the lineup and goes to the Mayo Clinic where he's diagnosed with ALS. How'd they know it was ALS? Well, neurology was a pretty new specialty at the time, but the neurologist who diagnosed him had lost his mother to ALS. So recognized that as soon as Gehrig took off his shirt, he could see the uneven muscle loss and could see the uh, the slight tremors in his hand and his fingers. And it was clear that he uh, had had all the all the symptoms and would typically uh, patients in that kind of condition lived a year or two at most. The Yankees declare a Lou Gehrig Appreciation Day between games of a July 4th doubleheader of the Washington Senators. 61,000 people crowd the old Yankee Stadium. All of his former teammates are there, including Babe Ruth, who was retired by that time. But Gehrig, who we've already described as somewhat shy, apparently did not want to speak. (laughs) 
he was desperate not to speak. He didn't even want to show up there that day. He he's so shunned attention. This is a guy who had to be begged for autographs because he just felt like he wasn't worthy of all the attention. And his wife really had to push him to be more outspoken, uh, even to fight for a raise. He didn't want to ruffle any feathers. So he's begging his manager up to the very last minute, don't make me do this. And then he's standing out there listening to all the other speeches. And he says, okay, that's good enough. You guys go home now. I'm, I'm, we're done here. But finally, Joe McCarthy, his manager, just shoves him up to the microphone and says, you have to say something. The crowd is roaring. We want Lou. We want Lou. So he kind of shuffles up to the microphone. He twists his hat in his hand and runs his hand through his hair and, and finally begins to speak. And it's just unbelievably moving. You've been reading You've been about reading a bad about a break. Today, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. The incredible thing is, this is a speech that becomes so incredibly famous. You say, I, I feel like I'm the luckiest man alive. Everybody knows you're quoting Lou Gehrig, even people who know very little about the history of baseball or care about it. Is that ingrained in the American psyche? But we have almost nothing of that speech. The newsreel cameras were running, but we have at most four sentences of it. First of all, why was that? And secondly, what else did he say? Well, nobody knew this was going to be historic. Garrick had never said anything interesting in his whole career. He was so mild. And there were sports writers that day. I think they weren't even taking notes until they realized, holy cow, this guy's giving the most moving speech we've ever heard. And they began quickly trying to catch up to him. But the newsreels didn't realize it was going to be historic. So nobody saved the entire thing. But here's what is so special about the speech. It's completely selfless. Gary gets up there and he says, you might have heard that I've been given a bad break, but today I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. And then he goes on to explain why he's lucky. And it really becomes a tribute to all the people who had helped him in life, his parents, his mother-in-law, his wife, of course, even down to like the ushers at the ballpark. And he's thanking them all. And, and what he's really doing, he's trying to make this easier for everyone, for his fans and for his friends. Sure, I may be dying, but look how much I've had, what a wonderful life I've had and how lucky I am to be alive. And that's the message that inspires us today. That speech turns Gehrig from a Hall of Fame plaque, because he certainly had a Hall of Fame career, minus ALS and that speech. But it takes Gehrig from somebody that just baseball fans would know about, and Yankee fans would certainly know about, to this national figure, and gets Samuel Goldwyn to make the movie, Pride of the Yankees, about him. And Goldwyn hated the idea at first of making a baseball movie. That's right. He had to be convinced that it wasn't a baseball movie. When he saw the speech, it really turned him around. He could see the, the drama there, the tragedy. It's Shakespearean, really. And then you also have to remember that by the time the movie came out, the U.S. was in World War II. So men weren't really around going to a lot of movies. So they had to turn this into a movie that women might go to see. So it becomes this tragic love story. And Eleanor becomes this very sympathetic, very moving and powerful character. So Garrick is transformed by the speech, by the tenderness that he shows, by the vulnerability that he shows. And that's really what makes him an American hero. Back then, remember, celebrities didn't talk about their illnesses. Now everybody has a foundation for every illness they come across. But back then, people died in private and people suffered uh, in private. It was very unusual for a celebrity to share his vulnerability that way. 
And finally, as ALS, a disease that was not well understood at the time, that we still don't have much for, but it goes from being ALS to Lou Gehrig's disease, and that really brings it to a spotlight where suddenly more work is being done on it because people want to know more about it. And people now who are told that they have this disease that back in the days when people felt that way about the disease might have even brought a sense of you know shame to some people. It's now Luke Gehrig's disease and people are spending more money, more research. It really changes the face of ALS. It absolutely does. And it's so important that this figure of strength is the symbol for a disease of weakness. So when you get this, when you're diagnosed and doctors hate to give this diagnosis, they can point to Gehrig and say, this is Lou Gehrig's disease. And there's some pride in that because he handled it so beautifully. And of course it helps with fundraising today. We're still looking for a cure. All because a man who was incredibly shy, did not want to speak at all that day, said a handful of words, only a few of which we actually have recorded on July 4th, 1939. It's a remarkable story. The full Lou Gehrig story is in Jonathan's book, Gehrig, The Luckiest Man, The Life and Death of Lou Gehrig. And again, his latest book is Ali, A Life about Muhammad Ali. Jonathan Ike, I thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Independence Day special from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to the Independence Day special from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. July 4th, 2020 will be remembered as a time of partisan divide, a fractured political landscape where cooperation between the House and the Senate, the White House and the Congress, the federal government and the states, well was as rare as an endangered species. But recently, the Great Outdoors Act fanned a breath of fresh air into our political discourse. When Congress passed, the president signed, and the National Governors Association hailed as a rare piece of legislation and policy embraced by all factions of the government. Kaylin O'Brien Feeney is director of the Oregon Office of Outdoor Recreation. And what is this act that amazingly brought everyone together? The Great American Outdoors Act is really a combination of two legislative efforts that have have been around for a long time. One is a program called the Land and Water Conservation Fund that's been around since the mid-60s that essentially funds conservation and outdoor recreation work in all 50 states. But this bill uh, makes that funding permanent at $900 million a year. The other piece is trying to shore up the maintenance uh, backlog that exists on national parks, national forests, and our and our rangelands. Maintenance needed for docks, for trails, for roads, campgrounds, restrooms. Um, all of those things help improve the visitor experience, right? The better shape something is in, um, perhaps the more fun it is, the safer it is to visit. There's also an element that uh, taking care of these places really helps with the stewardship. So protecting the natural and cultural resources that exist on our public land. So it's, it's twofold. Absolutely. This is an economic bill too. billions of tourist dollars, many jobs and the economies of some entire towns depend on recreation areas. There's a connection with this uh, injection of funding to actually help get folks working again on the ground, conducting some of the projects that uh, Great American Outdoors Act will fund. 
we know sort of in the um, pre-COVID environment, at least from the Bureau of Economic Analysis, that outdoor recreation is 2.2% of our nation's economy. The outdoor recreation economy is that mix, both of goods and gear and experiences. But recreation, even outdoors in a time of virus, is going to be different. We've been spending a lot of time working with those local parks, state parks, all the different managing agencies to try and provide some consistent guidance around what responsible recreation looks like right now so that folks understand both how to get outdoors safely and what the restrictions that we're, we're living with, well, how that makes it different than maybe, you know, last summer looked when you were planning your, your annual camping trip. So just what does the Great Outdoors Act do for us? Uh, in the short term, it'll help get some folks back to work. That's really another really important piece. And then land and water conservation funding goes out to the states, and then the states provide grants to do to, to a variety of things, but that includes new projects as well. And so it's the maintenance piece, it's getting folks back to work. Kalen O'Brien Feeney the director of the Oregon Office of Outdoor Recreation. This is the Independence Day special from the CBS Audio Network. This is the Independence Day special from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. It is summertime, and elsewhere on the program, we're talking about the most patriotic movies to watch. This time, summer movies. You know, the kind of thing you can watch possibly mindlessly and just enjoy some hot dogs and popcorn with whatever that is that you're claiming to be butter. You know, just like in the movie theaters. On the line with me right now is Eric Davis, the managing editor at Fandango. Hi, Eric. How are you? Hi. How's it going? It's going fine as anything is going fine this summer. It's a weird summer. It is. Definitely a weird summer. What we need back are drive-ins. You know, we're all in our individual cars, nice, safe, and protected. The only thing we have to do is uh, try and get away with not going to the bathroom during the movie. Yes, you know there are a lot of drive-ins uh, that exist that were existing that are that are open around the country, and there's a lot of pop-up drive-ins as well. Uh, by me, there are uh, local restaurants and diners that are uh, transforming their parking lots into pop-up drive-ins. So I would highly recommend if you're looking for that experience, definitely Google around, look for your local community uh, Facebook groups and whatnot. Uh, because there are a lot of drive-ins, uh, maybe more popular uh, than they've ever been, at least in the last few decades. Okay, so for all the rest of us who are watching movies, however, we can watch movies these days. A lot of theaters are reopening, a lot are not, a lot of movie watchings being done at home. What are some great summer movies? Well, you know, we actually put this out. We did a survey uh, for people. We asked them, uh, what are the best summer movies of all time? And uh, among those favorites, and some of these are my favorites too, uh, but Jurassic Park is right right in there. And that, I, I think for me, may be my favorite uh, summer movie experience because when Jurassic Park first came out, it was uh, sort of the, the new uh, age of surround sound in, in movie theaters. Uh, surround sound is something a lot of us take 
for granted now. Uh, we have it in our own homes. But when Jurassic Park first came out, it was a very a new technology that was new to theaters. And I remember watching Jurassic Park with my dad, and it was an awesome movie, uh, but it felt like there were dinosaurs breathing on my neck behind me, and I had never experienced that in a theater before. And so so Jurassic Park for me personally uh, is very is very memorable, but also it's among these lists of, of all of the, we surveyed hundreds of people. Uh, Jurassic Park is on there. Uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark Interesting. is on there. The first Indiana Jones movie. A uh, buddy of mine just went to, speaking of drive-ins, went to a drive-in uh, for Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, uh, which actually was my first drive-in movie. Uh, I saw it with my parents, uh, uh, and it really freaked me out a, a bit. A fun movie to watch in a cemetery, I imagine, probably too. Um, but yeah, Raiders of the Lost Ark, right at the top there uh, in terms of favorite, most memorable summer blockbuster movies. Uh, and uh, I, you know, I, I can't disagree with that. I think it's just a really great adventure film, um, a classic they're making another one. Believe it or not, Harrison Ford is returning to, to play Indiana Jones. Um, what that will look like, I do not know. Uh, but it is, um, it's, it's something to be said that, uh, both to the Jurassic franchise and that Indiana Jones franchise still around, still kicking decades. Later. It's interesting that when we talk to summer movies now, what we think of are the blockbusters instead of movies that say are about summer. Yeah, exactly. You know, I, and th- there's been some summer movies that didn't come out in summer. One of my favorite summer movies, The Sandlot, about the kids that play baseball um, and they run around and, and they get into all kinds of shenanigans. Uh, movie came out in early April, did not come out in in, in summer. Uh, a, a very awards friendly movie from the last few years, Call Me By Your Name. Um, Army Hammer uh, and uh, Timothy Chalamet uh, feels very much like a summer summer romance kind of movie. Uh, did came out in November, uh, so you know, some of the the, the most uh, memorable summer movies don't come out in summer, but a lot of them uh, do. And you know, Dirty Dancing, Ghostbusters, Gremlins, uh, these are all classic movies. Uh, the Goonies that came out uh, in that summer summer span, you know, and I think it's not just about blockbusters um but it's just about uh, sort of uh families and situations and characters that we relate to um and and that we enjoy watching and and uh, we enjoy movies uh about summer uh because it's this stretch of time where kids are out of school and and there's all sorts of room to to go on an adventure and to find a new love and uh, to do something that you've never done before. And I think some of that escape we find through the stories that we watch on the big screen. It's funny how many big movies about summer, whether they were released in summer or not, are about vacationing gone wrong. And I'm thinking there of, well, there's a, a ton of, you know, teenage slasher movies and things like that. But there's also Nap- uh, National Lampoon's Vacation and Jaws. I mean, it's it's a whole two very different movies, but both about, hey, let's do a nice summer days thing and all hell breaks loose. Yeah, I, I think, you know, vacations, family vacations, as important and as memorable as they always are, uh, there's always things that go wrong. And there are so many families that are just dysfunctional in, in the way that they communicate with each other. And so I think that's why National Lampoon's Vacation is so memorable, because as crazy as Clark Griswold is, and, and Father's Day just passed, and we were doing this list of, of fathers and movies, and Clark Griswold wasn't on there. And I had to say to everybody at Fandango, he 
is one of the most memorable cinematic fathers of all time, even if he is a bit of a moron. Uh, he he still means well, and his heart is in the right place. And I think that's what we see in that that movie, that vacation movie, uh, which has spawned a number of sequels as well as a remake that came out uh, with Ed Helms. Um, it's it's a fun movie to watch, you know. And Jaws, I mean, how much can you say about Jaws? Jaws launched the summer blockbuster. This was the first yep. summer movie that uh, made, a, you know, that just broke records at the box office and 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 told studios that hey, maybe there is something to uh, this season. Maybe there is something to this summer stretch there where we can take some of these big big films and put them there and create this kind of, I guess, amusement park feel to the summer movie season. And that really just birthed the summer movie season. And nowadays it feels like these big movies are coming out all, all throughout the year. Um, but there is still something very special about, about summer and the experiences uh, that we have in summer. And I still don't go into in the water uh, without really surveying the scene because of uh, Jaws. Of course. Now, when you surveyed people on Fandango about summer movies, any big surprises? Uh, one of the biggest surprises is that, um, you know, the, the superhero movies are a big deal uh, these days, and uh, especially the Avengers movies. Uh, we just got two gig gigantic Avengers movies back-to-back -back in Avengers Infinity War and Avengers Endgame. Neither of those films on, on in that top top five uh but instead guardians of the galaxy uh which is sort of about that ragtag group of space outlaws led by chris pratt and there's a rocket raccoon and and a tree called groot uh that film believe it or not the first of them there's two uh it beat out the avengers movie. you know what if i'm putting my feet up in the summer and especially under conditions right now where there's a lot of things that i expected to be doing that i'm not doing and all of that if I've got a choice between seeing a superhero and a wisecracking raccoon, I'm going for a wisecracking raccoon. I'm just saying. Yes, yes. Voiced by Bradley Cooper, believe it or not. He he is the voice of, of Rocket Raccoon and uh, has became a really popular character. Uh, but yeah, I agree with you. I think it's those kinds of characters, you know, that, that relationship between a, a gun-toting, talking raccoon and a tree that can only say his name, Groot. Um, you know, who would have thought that that relationship would have become one of the most popular in terms of on-screen duos of, of recent years. But, uh, you know, it just goes to show you that I think people are looking for uh, imagination when it comes to their blockbuster entertainment and their summer entertainment. They, they want something that feels grounded and relatable in some ways, but also that has a lot of imagination. And so I think everybody can look at the relationship between Rocket, Raccoon, and Groot and say, that's like me and my best friend. Uh, but also they can look at it and say, wow, look how much imagination was put into these two characters. I would have never thought uh, to, to create characters like that and that I would enjoy watching them as much. Yeah, I guess it is like, you know, some of us and our best friends, if our best friends go through our garbage <laughs> and can give us rabies. Yes, exactly. Eric Davis is managing editor at Fandango. Eric, thank you so much as always. Thanks so much. You're listening to the Independence Day special from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to the Independence Day special from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. 
We know a good deal about the Founding Fathers. We can reel off their names and accomplishments pretty easily, and we pass by monuments and remembrances of them all the time. But other than the Molly Pitcher Service Center on the New Jersey Turnpike, where you can ironically grab some Betty British Arthur Cheecher's Fish and Chips, places that honor our Founding Mothers are few and far between. These are the kinds of stories that historian Kate Kelly likes to tell and has in more than 30 books and at her website, americacomesalive.com, where she tells the little-known stories that are the fabric of the United States history. She's also on the board of the American Battlefield Trust. Kate, good to have you with us. How are you? I'm delighted. I'm perfect. Thank you. Let's start with Abigail Adams, because I think since the HBO series on her husband, really both of them, more people than ever, are at least somewhat familiar with our second first lady. Uh, Tell me more about her. Well, I think the important thing to remember is that her line, remember the ladies, which is what we all have have clung on to and gets repeated, was actually a, a plea to her husband, John, to remember women's rights when they put together the government. So so she was, it was a very pure, very serious request, and we can all later judge how much that got implemented at that time. But from Abigail Adams, I'd like to make a, a quick, quick leapfrog over to Martha Washington, because she's equally famous, and yet people have no idea what she did during the Revolutionary War. George Washington only went home to Mount Vernon in 1775, and then he did not return until 1781. So she made a commitment to meet him every winter. Now, in those days, the Revolutionary, uh, the, the Continental Army, the, the armies did not fight during the winter weather. So they would set up a winter camp. So whenever he set up his winter camp, Martha would make arrangements to go and join him. As the leader of the the army, he always got the house. And so she would set up in the house and then she would make sure that he was well rested and fed, but also entertaining all the officers and anyone who came to make plans with him. And so that was a commitment that that she made. And the soldiers who wrote home from that experience said that it was actually a lift to their spirits when Martha Washington appeared for winter camp, which is actually a lovely thought. It is a lovely thought. Was it just the idea that she would appear there and be seen with them under these conditions and also just the fact that her support of the revolution? I mean, George and Martha Washington were very, very well-off people. They were not revolutionaries because they had not prospered under the British system. So the fact that they were among the leaders of this revolution must have meant a lot to people. Yes, I think so. And also just the sense of calm, that she was there, that life was going to become still for a little while. They were all freezing, didn't have enough clothing. So there was not a whole lot to be grateful for. But it was one of those things that there was this sign of everything's going to be okay. She's here. And I do believe they had a lot of belief in in George Washington. So that made it a very positive unit. Margaret Corbin is somebody who's interesting, because if we think of women as soldiers, which we don't often do back in the time of the revolution, her story stands out. What is her story? Well, she was the first woman to earn a military pension. And the surprising part about that story is she wasn't even in the military. During that time, it was common for wives, or it was somewhat common for wives to go along. Now, they did not have the Martha Washington setup of moving up in a house, but a few wives would go along with a regiment and be there for um, laundry and helping with food and that sort of thing. And Margaret Corbin was one of the women. Her husband, John, they were both from Pennsylvania. They happened to be stationed at Fort Washington. And the order at that time was that the Pennsylvania artillery, where they were 
which which John Corbin was a part of, would fire on the Hudson if the British ships should start their trek up the, the Hudson River. So that happened. The British were on the move and John Corbin was manning the cannon that he was assigned to. So he was there uh, with Margaret at his side and she was handing him the ammunition in order to stuff it into the cannon so that he could continue to fire as rapidly as possible. He's fatally shot. And she looks at the situation, realizes that there's no bringing him back. And her reaction is to step into his place and she starts operating the cannon. So she fires off as long as she can until she too is wounded. The British won that particular battle and gathered their prisoners. And the tradition at that time was that if you were a wounded prisoner, they would release you and send you back to your home camp. So she did get released and got back to medical care. And then much, much later, she was eligible for a half pay pension. But that was better than nothing, considering she wasn't even signed up to be in the military. There's somebody who I think hardly anybody listening is going to know of a teenager by the name of Sybil Ludington. And she actually out Paul Revered, Paul Revere. Yes, and I love her story. She absolutely did. She was 16 years old. Her father was Colonel Henry Ludington, and he was in charge of the militia in Dutchess County, New York, but also his area spanned Western Connecticut. And now if, if you don't know about the militia, the men all went home and took care of their farms until they were actually needed to fight. And so Henry Ludington hears that the British have actually landed in Connecticut on Campo Beach. And he's, oh, my goodness, all my men are out at their home farms. And so he had to stay at his own home in order to be there to give directions to people who came, you know, when they arrived. And he had only one option. He needed to send his oldest child out to gather the militia. His oldest uh, child was a girl, Sybil. She was 16 years old. She took the family horse that was the fastest, and it was heading toward evening. She rode through the night, 40 miles round trip in pouring rain. Knowing the route, she knew where all the men were. She called out. She let them know that the militia was gathering, and she returned. And as she returned, the men started arriving as well. So he he had his militia gathered, and, and it was to her credit. And there actually is a statue to her in Connecticut. So that's a very good thing. That is good. But she traveled twice as far as Revere and in a driving rainstorm too absolutely and she was the only one revere was part of several riders but Sybil, it was all on Sybil's shoulders to make sure that the military was alerted i guess listen my children you shall hear yeah luddington doesn't doesn't rhyme it's it's sad because other than that maybe every school child would know Sybil luddington yes it's a great story just because she was a wonderful role model and never you know never thought twice about the order from her father Phyllis Wheatley is is an interesting person to talk about who had a meeting with George Washington that must have been interesting on its own. Who is she? Phyllis Wheatley is a former slave, so that makes it even better. She was seven years old when she was on a slave ship being brought into the port of Boston, and she was purchased off the slave ship uh, by a family named Wheatley in the area. Now, they were a very progressive family, and when they realized that Phyllis was quite smart and was catching on to reading and writing. They had no problem with that, but 
then they watched as she continued and she was reading poets and writing poetry and they were really quite taken by her ability. So they had worked to see if they could get her published in the United States. That didn't work out. So one of their sons was on his way to London in 1773. He took Phyllis with him. They were able to work out publication of her first book of of poetry. And when she came back, she was actually an esteemed author. She by this time had been freed by the family as well. So she went on to be a very respected person. Washington quoted her poetry and and called him in, her in for a meeting. And yes, it's it's quite a good story considering how terrible her circumstances were at the beginning. And an interesting meeting because in another section of this program, we talk about George Washington and slavery. And he and his wife had slaves. And though privately he expressed some reservations about slavery publicly he never did and yet there is this meeting with phyllis wheatley as somebody reading poetry who he complimented it's it's an interesting dichotomy yes and i think that so many of the founding fathers had had that dual view of things but yes she was an esteemed person by the time she met with washington and and that's very much to her credit rebecca mott is a name i think most people don't know Who was she? She was a well-to-do woman and lived in uh, uh, Charleston, South Carolina. And I thought she was a good story to pick because most people don't think of the Revolutionary War being fought in the South, but a great deal of the war was actually fought in that area. So it wasn't just a New England type of battle. It was also being fought in the South. And Rebecca was well-to-do. Her home was beautiful. It was up on a, a bluff over Charleston, South Carolina. So it was a great sighting and a great place to look down on the city. When the British came through in 1780 and took Charleston over, they also commandeered her house. And she was pretty mad about that. She was a patriot. She did not want them in her home, and yet she had no choice. So they moved her out, and the officers moved in and had a fine time. And so when the Continental Army officers approached her, they said, you know, about the only way we're going to dislodge those men is by firing on them, and the house may burn. And she said, go ahead. I'll provide the ammunition. She did. They fired on the house. The redcoats went running. And she they were able to get in and stop enough of the fire. Some of the house did burn, but they were able to stop enough that she was able to continue to live there. And, you know, a week later, she was having men in for dinner. So it was one of those things like she, she was on the right side and did the right thing. So it was a good story. Historian Kate Kelly on the women of the American Revolution. Now, she's also helping look after America's battlefields, and we have more on that coming up. This is the Independence Day special from the CBS Audio Network. This is the Independence Day special from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. We've been talking to historian Kate Kelly about the people who fought in the revolution. Now let's talk about the places where it was fought and how to preserve them. Besides women, you're on the board of the American Battlefield Trust, so you you know of more stories. But I just wanted to mention this briefly because people are very, very involved with Civil War battlefields. They know where many of them are. They recreate battles and all of that. Other than Lexington and Concord, the Boston Massacre, and of course, Yorktown, I think most Americans probably could not name 
many Revolutionary War battlefields, and I know it's been a problem preserving them for some reason. We don't seem to have the same romance about them that we do about the Civil War. Well, and I think the other issue with the Civil War is a lot of the people who are members had descendants whom they know, they have diaries, they have records and that sort of thing. So they come out to know more about their family to begin with. And with the Revolutionary War, of course, those people are there. I've got Revolutionary War family, but it's one of those things tracking back and getting the detail you might want is a little more difficult. So those stories are not as well told. But I also will say that part of it is that our organization has existed and the government has has given us permission to gather these properties and then deed them over to the park services in the area. And we now have that same, uh, you know, permission to do with the Revolutionary War battlefields. And we are doing everything we can. And some of the best land to get right now is in the South because it's unrecognized. And yet we can do a a Revolutionary War trail down there so that people can can travel and see what happened. And, you know, there will be a lot more known about that in, in the coming years, which is wonderful. Which is great. And I know about that Southern Trail is one of the problems that in the Northeast, by the time people really realized this was an important part of our history, a lot of it had reverted back to private property and had been built on. Now, probably some of those battlefields are under shopping centers and apartment buildings. Yes, that is certainly true. And yet one of the things that's great about the Battlefield Trust is they befriend people in the community. And in some cases, we've been able to purchase land that had been built upon. And then because we can move as a nonprofit more quickly than a government could, we're able to get the right permissions, take down the house and return it to what it might have looked like as a battlefield and then deed it over. I also will say that the Battlefield Trust is very good at building relationships with the people and, and staying in touch with a family. So that they say, look, if you're ever interested in selling, we'll pay market price. You know, you don't have to do anything special for us. You know, we'll match whatever the developer is going to do. And so I think that makes a difference. People, if people are at all history centric, they're going to say, oh, this is good because it's also good for the environment. If we can preserve these battlefields, it it brings back the grasses, the birds, you know, things like that, that are just a, a lovely part of the community in between all of these shopping malls. And and yes, certainly one of the things that became very clear is you can't tell the story of Antietam if you're standing in the parking lot at a McDonald's. Wonderful as McDonald's may be in our country, we need to make sure we have land to tell the story. And we're also very concerned with education because we realize the current generation I mean, the older generation, we know why this is very important, but we need to make sure that kids in in grade school and and junior high today are learning these stories so they'll understand that this is what gives us the freedoms that we have and that it's really important that we preserve it and that we have these stories to tell. It's kind of stunning when people are walking around, say, Brooklyn, which is not a place people, I think, even think about where Revolutionary War battles were fought, and they just stumble upon a little historical marker or a little sign and go, good grief, really? Here? Oh, exactly. And in some of those places, like you go up into the cemetery there, and you look down on the harbor and everything, and all of a sudden, it gives you a whole different perspective about what people saw and what the fighting might have entailed. It really, it really is important to have that land. Yeah, exactly. And it things come to life. For instance, in New York City, George Washington, after losing a battle for 
uh, with Britain being able to get out of New York City with his troops and get out of there alive. He, he barely made it. The revolution that could have just ended there, but it did not. And this is all part of our history. And I think when you can walk it, even if it doesn't look at all like a battlefield anymore, and just kind of like look around and imagine it, it really does bring some of this history back to life. Absolutely. And then you just have to go to the American Battlefield Trust website where it, it, it they've just got a ton of educational material. You could read forever about anything you see or want to know about, and it's it's really a, a valuable resource. Kate Kelly also has a valuable resource at her website, which is americacomesalive.com, where there are stories all through the eras of American history that you probably don't know. I know I didn't know them, and she is also, as we mentioned, on the board of the American Battlefield Trust. Kate, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed it. This is the Independence Day special from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to the Independence Day special from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. Celebrating the 4th of July, we, of course, think of the American Revolution. It is, of course, well known that Americans fought on both sides of the revolution. Though we don't talk much about the Tories today, many Americans either just stayed out of the revolution, it was easy to do after some early skirmishes, most of the fighting took place in the countryside, or actively fought with or supported the British, either out of a sort of sense of loyalty or just figuring this ragtag revolution that lost almost every battle for years did not stand a chance of victory. Blacks in America, like their white brethren, fought on both sides, but for different reasons. Historian John Whittington Franklin joins us. He follows in the footsteps of his father, the noted historian for whom the John Hope Franklin Humanities Institute at Duke University is named. Good to have you with us. How are you? Fine. It's a pleasure to be with you. For blacks in America, most of whom were slaves at that time, many in the North as well as the South, I imagine what side you chose to fight on had to do with who you think stood the best chance of eventually giving you freedom. Well, you know that uh, George Washington uh, made a ban on the participation of free or enslaved blacks participating in the Revolutionary War. And seven, in November 1775, but the governor of Virginia, Lord Dunmore, the same month, makes the Dunmore proclamation that he will seek freedom for any enslaved person that fights on the British side. It's very interesting. We don't hear that side at all. There's a fascinating novel, actually, and that was made into a miniseries called The Book of Negroes, about the 3,000 people, indeed, who could claim to have supported the British and therefore won freedom and land in Nova Scotia following the war. At the National Museum of African American History and Culture, where I used to work until I retired, uh, we make sure that we tell both the, the U.S. and the, the Black loyalist side of the story. But I think people should be aware of how, how extensive slavery was in the north of the United States starting in the 1600s. We've just gotten off of this 1619 kick, uh, but it really didn't pursue what's happening in the rest of the country. It focused on Virginia. We don't think about slavery in the North at all, but all of these New England states have a good 
150 to close to 200 years of slavery before they begin abolishing it. So we forget this pervasive influence of, of Africans throughout New England. And most of those who fight in the, in the Revolutionary War are in the North. Um, there are up to 5,000 African-Americans fighting uh, in the Revolutionary War for the North, for the American side. One of the interesting things is some of the people, and we will get to some of these stories, who individually uh, became heroes of the American Revolution, who were black, uh, were runaway slaves. And when people hear the word runaway slaves, they think immediately, oh, they ran away from the South. But most of them had run away in the North. That's right. So the Revolutionary War uh, really inspired people because it's about freedom. My father used to say, Whenever there was freedom, we'd like to say, well, we'd like some too. It's not just for white British people. What about the enslaved people that you've kept here since the 1600s? All the rhetoric is about freedom. So people took advantage of the war to flee in the South and the North to get away from the slave owners. And it wasn't until, I think, about 1778 that finally... The first Rhode Island Regiment is formed, the first Continental Army unit largely comprised of blacks from New England that showed off the skills of African-Americans as soldiers who were now allowed to fight in the revolution and because the Rhode Island legislature uh, could actually be freed at the end of service. Yes. So um, you have people meeting great distinction and convincing others that indeed it was correct to bring African-Americans into the into the war uh, because they helped win. So this is if I'm black and I am in North America at that time, and I'm trying to figure out who gives me a better chance of winning freedom for myself, my family. This is a risky bet. In the United States, there are people in power, such as Ben Franklin, who we talk about in another segment, who were all for abolishing slavery. But most other American leaders either held slaves themselves or feared it would break up an already shaky federation. The British were closer to banning slavery, but that was still three decades away. And a number of years after that, even though slavery was banned in Great Britain, that Great Britain still allowed the slave trade to go on. So trying to bet which of these two sides was really going to be the best bet was a hard bet to make. Well, the Americans at no point were promising you freedom uh, as, as an enslaved person. Uh, there were some movements toward manumission, uh, but they don't take place until after the, after the revolution. So the only real promise, if you knew about it and heard about it, I don't know how, the great, how well the grapevine worked then, uh, but you had to know about Lord Dunmore's promise um, in order to to organize yourself to work around on the British side. We have some just incredible materials in Canada, in Nova Scotia, that tell this side of, of the Black loyalists. And of course, the Black loyalists then, some of them go on to live in England, some of them go on to, to Sierra Leone as part of the... Um, the the movement the colonization movement so it's a story we don't we don't learn on this side of the border we don't learn about the black loyalists and the black loyalists also they're loyalists who leave the Virginia the Carolinas and take their slaves with them to the Bahamas to Bermuda and to Barbados 
So they're loyalists that end up in what are still British colonies. And uh, that's another part of the story that we don't hear. It's not until I was working on the Bahamas did I realize that these are the Africans who brought grits to the Bahamas. They're coming from the southern states with their white loyalist owners. One of the things that is really startling, when we were talking about blacks who fought for America and the North, John, is I found the story of Jude Hill. This is a guy who fought valiantly for the Continental Army for seven years, fought at Bunker Hill, fought at Ticonderoga, Trenton, uh, Hubbardton, uh, Saratoga, Monmouth, was wounded several times, was given his freedom. He became a farmer in Exeter, New Hampshire. But despite being known for his heroism in the war, Two of his children were kidnapped and sold into slavery. Another, Shanghai, taken out to sea and never heard from again. So even freedom did not mean you and your family were safe, not even in New England. No, not at all. Uh, not until after the, the Civil War were you free, because at all point, at all times, uh, as a runaway, you could be pursued by slave catchers and returned to your owner. Yeah, and Hall's kids weren't even runaway. They were his kids being brought up in New Hampshire, and it didn't matter. They were kidnapped. There was money for getting black men and women and just kind of disappeared off the face of the earth. Yeah. So there are many parts of our history that remain hidden to us. These last months give us the opportunity to continue to learn the depth and complexity of our history. We are learning more and more. John Whittington Franklin, I thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. You're listening to the Independence Day Special from the CBS Audio Network. This is the Independence Day Special from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. One of America's most important Revolutionary War monuments is probably unknown to most Americans. The common story about New York City and the Revolution is it didn't have much of a story. Washington was chased by the British from Long Island, lost 1,500 men, killed, wounded, or captured at the Battle of Brooklyn, and ran through the city to safety upstate while the British held New York until the war ended. Nathan Hale was hanged as a spy, and that was about it. But it's anything but. In fact, one of the greatest acts of patriotism in our history took place there. Also, the most deaths. 8,000 or so Americans died in all of the battles of the Revolution, but more than 11,500 men and women died in New York Harbor. The British gathered American prisoners on old ships in the East River that were gutted, and human beings were just crammed inside. Most died. Robert Sheffield, one of the few survivors, wrote about it in 1778 in the Connecticut Gazette. The heat was so intense that the 300 prisoners were all naked and the sick were eaten up alive. Their sickly countenances and ghastly looks were truly horrible, some crying, praying, and wringing their hands and stalking about like ghosts. Others delirious, raving, and storming, all panting for breath, some dead and corrupting. The air was so foul that at times a lamp could not be kept burning, by reason of which bodies were missed until they had been dead for ten days. There was much filth to run on the hold and mingle with the bilge water. In other words, they were living in sewage. 
Food was moldy bread, rancid meat of who knows what, and what was called soup made of East River water, which was poisoned by the tanneries whose runoff flowed into what was a toxic tidal basin. One survivor, Christopher Hawkins, said some lived by eating the lice off their bodies. One ship, which had been the Jersey, was simply called Hell. A dozen or so people would die every day, and the British would just unceremoniously throw the bodies into the river. As they washed up on the shore, the people of Brooklyn would see to it that they were buried, though there was no way of knowing who they were. After a while, whatever there was, in time some of it was just dust, was moved to a crypt in Fort Greene Park. Finally, a monument was built, and a beautiful Doric column was dedicated by President Taft in 1908. But it ran down almost immediately. The huge lantern, meant to be an everlasting flame, was never lit. Beautiful bronze eagles were removed for fear they'd be stolen. A bronze plaque, repeatedly defiled, was taken away. An elevator to take people to the top did not function for long and was eventually removed with the shaft filled in. And what should have been one of America's most sacred places fell apart. Finally, in 2008, the city turned its attention to what should be, but still is not, a national monument. It was cleaned, the eagles brought back, the plaque honoring those whose remains are still inside restored. And here's the thing to remember about those who died and the 7,000 or so other POWs who died. For most of them, all they had to do to leave was swear allegiance to the crown. That's it. Which is why if you ever go to Brooklyn, you should stop by and pay your respects to what is the largest Revolutionary War graveyard in our country. It was just an idea that those people died for, but that was enough. This is the Independence Day special from the CBS Audio Network. This is the Independence Day special from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. There are many stories about the American Revolution not taught in schools. story of how our nation came to be is one that you would think we would tell in proud detail, but there are gaps. We do generally teach how much we owe to France, and Lafayette is, of course, a familiar name. But what about General Bernardo Vicente de Galvez y Madrid and what we owe to Mexico? Yeah, not so much on that. Dr. David Hayes-Batista is with the UCLA Fielding School of Public Health, a professor of health policy and management, but also a historian about American history. And it's good to have you with us. How are you? It's a pleasure. My pleasure entirely. Yeah, it is interesting that the help we got from south of the border and across the waters in Spain is something that, for the most part, is kind of a mystery to us. Well, it uh, was not taught to me, let's put it like that, as I went through schools. Uh, here in California. However, I had reason to look at historic, historical materials. I'm a demographer epidemiologist at the School of Medicine, and in so doing, I ran across this untaught story of Latinos in the American Revolution, which I love to share with people. Well, share some of it. Tell us about it. Okay. Well, uh, at the time of, say, Fourth July 4, 1776, people forget that two-thirds of what's now the United States was under Spanish rule. And you had Spanish-speaking cities from St. Augustine, Florida to San Francisco, uh, a very, very wide reach. And they were very aware of what was going on on the East Coast. In fact, uh, what we, we call the American Revolution was sort of round two of, again, what we call the French and Indian War. Uh, and it actually was hemispheric wide. There was action all around, including in the Caribbean, Central America, South America, etc. So it was another one of these big imperial issues. So, uh, Latinos knew about 
the events. In fact, Father Serra in 1778 offered a prayer for George Washington and the forces that he led because uh, in Serra's opinion, um, God was on the American side. But it was more than just prayers. Uh, one of the first things that uh, Latinos uh, contributed to the U.S. revolutionary effort back in 1776 was actually money. Jose de Galvez was in contact with George Washington. He was in contact with the Continental Congress. De uh, Galvez was stationed. He was the governor of Louisiana, both Baja Louisiana and Alta Louisiana. And we'll get back to that. And the first thing that uh, was requested of him was money because the Continental Congress didn't have any currency. They had printed the Continental dollar, which had nothing to back it up, and it was not being accepted by merchants. Basically, this fledgling government had no, no funds with which to equip an army, arm an army, uh, feed an army, house an army. They didn't have anything. Uh, so the Galvez immediately procured about a million pounds of gold and silver coins, lent them to the Continental Congress. And in fact, in November of 1776, the Continental Congress voted to make the um, Spanish peso that was mined and minted in Mexico the official currency of the United States, which it was until the American Civil War. Yeah, that is just to begin with. And actually, we should go back and describe some of the conditions because right before even the Battle of Yorktown, which, of course, is where the United States beats the British, Washington and the Continental Army were just out of money. They couldn't pay Washington soldiers. They couldn't pay French sailors. They couldn't pay anybody, really. And most of the Continental Army was a group of volunteers. They couldn't get paid. They were going home to their farms. And they ended up getting paid in Mexican silver and gold. And that's why they stayed on. And that's why they were still there. Absolutely. And it wasn't just money, although it's hard to wage a war without money. Uh, Supplies were sent over. Uh, my wife's from an old Texan family. Her great, 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 I don't know how many greats grandfather was, Joseph Menchaca. She's a Menchaca. Did the first cattle drive, not south to Saltillo from San Antonio, but north to Opelousa, Louisiana, where the 10,000 head of cattle were turned into food, shipped up the river, and used to feed the troops. Uh, there were uh, supplies from ranging from uniforms, tents, weapons, gunpowder, cannon, etc., to help feed and supply the uh, Continental Army. And along with that, in 1780, uh, the Spanish crown formally declared war on England, uh, along with its ally, which was France. And actually, the Lafayette and the French were a rather small detachment operating under the overall generalship of José de Galvez. So the Galvez, looking at the situation, realized that 13 colonies were just barely perched on the Atlantic seaboard, uh, kind of they tucked up into the Appalachian Mountains, and the rest of that land was British. Uh, British owned the East, from the eastern side of the Mississippi River over to the other side of the Appalachians. You had British forts, St. Joseph, uh, other places up in the north. You had the strong British fleet. And in many ways, the uh, overall strategy of the British was to use the um, eastern side of the Atlantic or the Mississippi River as their springboard and run a pinchers movement. This is moving towards uh, the eventual final battle at Yorktown to catch the Continental Army between the British Navy on the ocean and the army coming in through the Mississippi Valley. However, Bernardo de Galvez uh, fought his battles primarily uh, up the Mississippi River. He had a, uh, an interesting multilingual army, but the core of the army were Spanish-speaking soldiers. Uh, so you had soldiers from San Juan, Puerto Rico, from uh, Santo Domingo, today's Dominican Republic, from La Havana, from Mexico, from Texas, from Louisiana, from New Mexico, and from California involved in uh, the fight. 
and particularly as the Galvez fought his way up the Mississippi Valley to deny it to the British, uh, he um, took, uh, he won the Battle of Baton Rouge, Fort Manchac, Natchez, and his troops went all the way up to St. Joseph and the Great Lakes. Uh, more troops spoke Spanish than English in his armies, fighting for the independence of the United States. And then, of course, came the biggest set-piece battle, the Siege of Pensacola, which, by the way, had been originally uh, settled and built up uh, by the Spanish in, 15, in the 1550s. Uh, it, you still have that huge Spanish fortification like in St. Augustine. At that point, it was in British hands with the British fleet. So the Galvez took over 7,000 uh, effectives, a fleet of about 30, 40 ships, and laid siege for three months. Uh, at, to, to, uh, and he finally blew up the fort. Uh, bottled up the British fleet, so the British fleet was unable to uh, help in the final battle at Yorktown. So basically, thanks to the Galvez, uh, Washington didn't have to worry about the British Army coming over the Appalachian Mountains, uh, and the British fleet had been pushed out by the French fleet operating under the Galvez. And yes, Lafayette was there, but if you just looked on the other side of the, uh, the Appalachian Mountains into the Mississippi Valley, Mexican soldiers were there, Puerto Rican soldiers were there, Dominican soldiers were there. Californios, Tejanos, Luisianos, etc., were involved. Uh, money was raised, by the way, uh, for the Continental Army from the uh, settlers in California, New Mexico, and Texas. So people here from Los Angeles, Los Angeles had just been founded. It was about three months old, and people donated money, uh, also from San Gabriel, from San Juan Capistrano, and then from the uh, military units all the way from San Francisco down to San Diego. And we know who they are, we know what they donated. Likewise, you had people donating from Texas. So Latinos were very involved, very informed about what was going on all during the course of the American Revolution. And of course, when finally the Treaty of Paris was signed, the Spanish crown was one of the guarantors of the peace between Great Britain and the United States. I'm not sure why these stories got dropped out of the US history, uh, but I was certainly not taught. We always heard about the French, but now I understand that was just a relatively small detachment operating directly under the orders of the Galvez. We should have gone up the chain of command a little bit. It may have to do with this black legend about anything associated with Spain is somehow not very good. And this was at a time in the US history when there was a very strong, it's called the Anglo-Saxonist movement uh, that broke out into the American Know Nothing Party in 1855 as a reaction to bumping up against Catholic mestizo populations. So there may be any number of reasons. I'm not sure I could say why was it not included, but definitely it was not included, but it needs to be. Without that help, we probably still have just 13 little colonies on the East Coast. Yeah, there was an American agent named uh, Oliver Pollock who was actually authorized by Spain's King Charles III to buy military supplies, including gunpowder, in New Orleans, and that was then shipped up the Mississippi River. Uh, by Spanish Latino boats and boatmen to American rebel forces. So this was not a one-off. This was a significant contribution to the War of Independence that went on throughout the entire war. Absolutely. And then we forget that there were other battles fought in Central America, in the Caribbean. Because uh, remember, it was the British Empire against this little fledgling group. Uh, but it was a very large-scale set of engagements lasting a number of years, and Latinos from St. Augustine to San Francisco knew about it and were involved. Dr. David Hayes-Batista with the UCLA Fielding School of Public Health is professor of health policy and management, but also, as you've heard, quite a historian about American history. I thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. This is the Independence Day special from the CBS Audio Network.
Welcome back to the Independence Day special from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. Fourth of July brings out the patriotism of all of us, and many movies have been made to give us that feeling. Anne Hornaday, as chief film critic of the Washington Post, will go through some movies that you can enjoy during Independence Day. Anne, how are you? I'm great, Gil. So what strikes you when we think of patriotic movies? Well, you know, what strikes me is actually something that my, my husband told me once, which was when he was growing up, he attended Jesuit schools all through his childhood and youth. And he had a civics teacher, history teacher, who taught his students that there are actually four branches of the U.S. government. We're used to saying that there are three, right? The executive, judicial, and legislative. And his teachers said there's a fourth, and that's the citizens. Um, that The U.S. citizenry is its own branch of government. And that's never left me. And I think it's it's a really great way to think about democracy and about our engagement and our stewardship and our the continued need for being uh, informed and engaged at all times. And so when I was thinking about the movies that reflect that, that was kind of the theme. That was the theme I was hoping to maybe explore with you today. I like it. I can even think of some films that kind of combine branches of government and citizens, and I would start off a list like that with Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. And I saw three of them in his room the day I went up to see him. The Senator yield. Sir, I will not yield. That's the one, right? That's the guy. And it's so interesting because when we when we think of that as such an idealistic film, which it is, you know, it's this one guy doing the right thing against all odds. But at the time... You know, official Washington and the legislators that it was portraying in a very unflattering light hated it and said, this is, you know, you're not being fair. You're, you make us look so bad. And of course, you know, how adorable is that? Um, but but it's really it's, it's interesting kind of around the edges of what a what a kind of pessimistic view it actually does present of American democracy. Um, but for the kind of tireless efforts of this of this one lone voice of morals and reason. What else are you thinking of? Well, I was actually thinking of, you know, honestly, the very first movie I thought of was Hidden Figures um, from uh, 2016, which starred um, Taraji P. Henson as the mathematician Katherine Johnson. I need a mathematician that can look beyond the numbers. Math that doesn't yet exist before the Russians plant a flag on the damn moon. You have someone? Running what I'm playing. Catherine's a gal for that. She can handle any numbers you put in front of her. Don't embarrass me. What do you ladies do for NASA? Calculate your mountain landing, sir. Engineer. And I'm proud as the devil. Who, with a bunch of other really gifted, very smart women, uh, were crucial to getting the moonshot started and, and the NASA program going. They were called computers. In other words, they were computing all the formulae that would allow the astronauts to be launched into space and to land back safely. And it has that kind of testament to enterprise and, and, you know, aspiration and dreaming big that I think we think of when we think of America at its greatest. And in this case, it's all centered around a group of African-American women who aren't usually centered in those narratives or haven't historically been in Hollywood. And it's just, when it came out, I remember... (laughs) I love the movie so much. It's just this great, rousing, old-fashioned, entertaining movie. And what I really appreciate about it is that literally anyone, you can send anybody to it and they'll love it. It's for kids. It's for grown-ups. It's for teenagers. I mean, it's just, as a critic, I'm always grateful when I can send people to something kind of unconditionally, you know, um, 
And that's the kind of movie it is. It's just got those wonderful values to it that I think are irresistible and great performances from Taraji B. Henson and Octavia Spencer and Janelle Monet. And it's just, it's a beautiful looking film and it tells a great story. And I just think it calls on all the best aspects of, again, it centers around citizens. It centers around people who are beautifully educated and informed themselves and pursued their passions. And in this case, these were intellectual passions. And I just think it elevates all the right values about, about what it means to be an American. Okay, so what else struck you? Um, I also thought of Aaron Brockovich, um, another wildly entertaining movie. It's, it, you'll, you'll note a theme here, which is that everything pretty much is based on real-life people. And I didn't do that on purpose, but there you go. But Aaron Brockovich was, was a single mom who, uh, again, you know, became a legal assistant and educated herself in the issues. In this case, it had to do with the pollution of the water supply in a community in California. And she doggedly followed that story and doggedly, um, you know, talked to the families that were affected. Why are there medical records and blood samples in real estate files? Would you mind if I investigate this a little further? You're a lawyer? Hell no. I hate lawyers. I just work for them. We're going to have to spend a little time filling in the holes in your research. Don't talk to me like I'm an idiot, okay? I think we got off on the wrong foot here. That's all you got, lady. Two wrong feet and ugly shoes. It's a portrait of perseverance and dare I, you know, self-improvement, you know, just sort of self, um, she's a self-starter and very independent, beautifully played by Julia Roberts. And again, it's just a really, it's just a wildly entertaining portrayal of what one person can do uh, when faced. In this case, it's not so much governmental back, pushback, but corporate, but it's still that kind of sense of it's really, you know, we have to we have to kind of get off our own keisters and do the work. You know, we can't expect everybody to do it for us. And that's what I admire about, about this movie. And again, it's just really, to my mind, flawlessly executed by Steven Soderbergh. To your point about Apollo 13, these narratives, they don't come fully, you know, they're not, they're not automatically great. You know, it takes, it takes, wonderful artists to kind of bring them to life dramatically and i just think it's a very well-made movie and you know and another one that could go into this slot was nine to five i want to elevate a comedy i mean so much good storytelling and and um good content is is conveyed through comedy and nine to five had a fascinating genesis which is that it was really it was based on a true story of women organizing these um, clerical workers in Ohio, organizing at a bank. And Jane Fonda talked to them and got the material to create that script that she and Lily Tomlin and Dolly Parton brought to life so delightfully. And in that case, it was really just illuminating a problem without saying, this is a problem. You know, it was more just saying, we all know this is a problem. <laughs> and isn't it, you know, it kind of winking at the audience saying, oh, girl, <laughs> like it, it, it just had this terrific kind of sense of recognition to it. And then again, this portrait of women taking matters into their own hands, albeit parodically and, and in an extreme way, which was, which is, you know, a satirical way, but still, I think, illuminating a social problem that uh, in, a, in just a very, very effective and clever way. A perfect comic foil performance by Dabney Coleman there as well. Spare me the women's lib crap, okay? Now, I know how you feel and I understand it. You understand zilch. I understand I'm still a boss here. And even though you might be pretty valuable out there, you better get a hold of yourself. I'm not going to sit here and take this. Why? What a, I mean, truly, the unsung hero <laughs> of that movie. He was a good sport. 
<laughs> and did and again played beautifully, just beautifully alongside those women. What else do we have? Well, I have a soft spot for Selma. That's the movie, the Ava DuVernay's movie about Martin Luther King and the um, the civil rights movement that came out in 2014. And and one of the reasons um, I love this movie is that it it has taken it took so long for that particular story to get to the big screen. I mean, there have been wonderful documentaries about King, and there had been movies set during the civil rights era, but really we didn't ever, we hadn't had that kind of epic storytelling centering him. And and David Oyelowo, the British actor, plays him very well. Ava DuVernay constructed the script, not from his real speeches, but kind of paraphrasing him. And I thought that was an interesting approach. Again, a very stirring portrait, not just of one man, but a movement. And that's really hard to do. And I think that's why, one of the reasons why it took so long for any kind of movie to get to us is because it's just, it's technically very difficult to tell such a multi-factor story. Detroit, New York, Los Angeles, inciting large-scale arrests and sympathy marches. I'm very aware of that, Mr. Hoover. What I do know is nonviolent. What I need to know right now What's Martin Luther King about to do next? It is unacceptable that they use their power to keep us voiceless. Those that have gone before us say no more. This revolution goes on and on. This revolution goes on and on. have seen the glory, 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 hallelujah. What happens when a man stands up, says enough is enough? And I did think that the depiction of um, Lyndon Johnson, I mean, a lot of people thought he came, you know, that it was not fair to him. But honestly, I thought it was I thought it was a very convincing portrait and uh, portrayal of the pressures he was under. And I think it gave him his due, you know, in terms of saying, look, I remember there was a line saying you have one issue. I have ninety nine, you know, because he had so many interests to juggle and so many pressures coming his way. And I thought it was a very effective um kind of dual portrait of one form of power, which is that executive power, that presidential power, and then another form of power, which is that grassroots activism and how they play off one another, how they're in tension, how they're, but how they can be harnessed, you know, how one can harness the other to actually move the ball forward. I just thought it was very, very well done in, in that respect. Anne Hornaday is chief film critic for The Washington Post, the author of Talking Pictures, How to Watch Movies. And thanks for being with us. Thank you, Gil. This is the Independence Day special from the CBS Audio Network. This is the Independence Day special from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. The nation is having a conversation about African Americans in present-day America. The 4th of July brings us to a different part of that conversation. What has Independence Day meant to Americans whose forebears found no independence in 1776. The history here is much more complex than you might even imagine. And we're joined by Mary Elliott, who is curator at the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture. Mary, it's good to talk to you again. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you, Gail. How are you? I'm fine. A lot of the definition of African Americans in the 4th of July goes back and was defined by a speech given on the 5th of July back in 1852. And that was a speech given in Rochester, New York by Frederick Douglass. What was said at that time? So at that time, there were African-Americans who actually um, acknowledged the 4th of July, but on July 5th. 
And Frederick Douglass, during his presentation to the crowd in Rochester, New York, called the nation to task. And he called out and questioned, why am I here? Why am I here to deliver this speech and celebration of the 4th of July of this nation's um, liberty, independence? He starts out by saying, I'm not wanting in respect for the fathers of this republic. The signers of the Declaration of Independence were brave men yet I cannot contemplate their great deeds with less than admiration. But he goes on to say, he asks, what to the American slave is your 4th of July? And then he answered his own question. And he said, a day that reveals to him more than all other days in the year, the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is the constant victim. He goes on at length and, and lays out this whole case of the irony of liberty and freedom being upheld while the nation was maintaining slavery. One of the lines that's really interesting, I mean, it's, it's a long, you know, um, oration of what's going on. But essentially, he says to him, your celebration is a sham, your boasted liberty, an unholy license, your national greatness, swelling vanity, your sounds of rejoicing are empty and heartless. And that's just a few of the things that he said. It is a situation that you would think would have been already remarked upon. After all, the country was founded with the lines, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. Uh, besides the fact that it says men and not men and women, there's still that thing about all created equal, and yet there was little attempt to live up to one of the founding ideals of the nation. That is true. And then you also have to think about the time. So here, African-Americans had already fought for their freedom um, through rebellion and out in the public arena calling out the nation. They fought in service in the Revolutionary War, fighting for freedom against a backdrop of a fight for liberty. So they shed their blood, sweat and tears for this nation to become a, an independent nation. And <clears throat> at the same time, you would think that um, perhaps they would be included in this um, great foundational document. However, it's not surprising because they were seen as less than human. They were a tool used for economic power, which then provided political power. And in the foundational documents, you see them boil down to three-fifths of a person merely for representation and taxation purposes. And so it's not surprising that it was not something that was um, readily called out all the time about the state of the nation and the irony, but there was still an abolitionist movement that was building steam during that period of 1852. And there were African-Americans who always voiced that concern, always through speeches, through sermons, through running away. The irony of a nation standing on freedom, on liberty, but maintaining in slavery. It's interesting when we hear that blacks were considered three-fifths of a person, people automatically think, well, that must have been something instituted by the South. But really, the North was worried because there were so many blacks being held as slaves in the South that they counted as full people. They would overwhelm the North in the Electoral College in the House of Representatives. Isn't that interesting? <clears throat> it feels like Quite often, Black people are at the center of many of those compromises that took place. Um, the Compromise of 1850, and you think about um, slavery, and even the three-fifths clause, which is a compromise. And the lives of African Americans are at the heart of that. And so the interesting part about that is that compromise, while it 
um, was seemingly supposed to help everyone on both sides. What is true is that those three-fifths add up. Most African-Americans are offended by the notion that they were considered only three-fifths of a person. But if you dig deeper, as you've alluded to, three-fifths add up for representation and taxation. So what does that mean? That means that as a million plus people were moved down south during the domestic slave trade, who ends up having more power in Congress? Because the seats are divvied out by the population. And so you add up those three fifths and that planter class, those enslavers had more power and could dictate the nation at that time. Now, when the Civil War ends, something interesting happens to the 4th of July in the South. The Smithsonian's Mary Elliott will get to that next. This is the Independence Day special from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to the Independence Day special from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. We've been talking about Independence Day and black Americans with Mary Elliott, a curator at the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture. And we're just getting to a very unique period in July 4th history. There is an interesting period that we don't learn about anywhere, really. After the end of the Civil War, you have four million newly emancipated citizens, and they transformed the 4th of July, Independence Day, into a celebration of black freedom. And in the former Confederacy, where they still were not thrilled at all about being part of the United States, it really was a black holiday for years until white Southerners decided they were going to take it back. Well, it was indeed a holiday for all Americans, but you can imagine those who had served in the Confederacy and did not seem beholden to the Union at that time, despite having lost the war and also having been required to um, adhere to loyalty oaths. They did not see any occasion for celebration, yet African-Americans found the occasion of celebrating liberty as a moment to celebrate their freedom. And so they formed parades, they had gatherings, very public, large gatherings, particularly in areas throughout the South. But if you look at, for example, down in South Carolina, where it was so full, so crowded with representations of people from military units to benevolent societies, lifting up the importance of freedom. And in many ways, looking at and hoping that the nation is living up to a more inclusive sense of freedom. And so they had more than enough reason to celebrate um, their experience, which is part of the larger American experience. But you can imagine what the tension was in those Southern states, formerly Confederate states, that now had to deal with this nation in transition. There were these giant celebrations that you point out, Charleston, South Carolina, parades, including uh, black militia members. These things grew uh, gigantic, festive celebrations. And when people start to crack down against this, I noticed one of the things that legislators and sheriffs and all seem to be very concerned with is something with the seemingly inoffensive name Tulalu. What were they talking about and why was it so necessary for the power brokers to move that, whatever it was, 
out of central parts of the major cities. Well, you know, it's interesting about Tulalu. Tulalu was another word, once I share with you what it, the event actually was, but what's interesting is Tulalu became a, a commonly understood word amongst African-Americans referring to the 4th of July. The practice of Tulalu is nothing new in the sense that people of African descent, enslaved African-Americans and people of African descent throughout the diaspora often displayed in their parades some form of jest towards um, the white class, white Americans, the white class throughout the diaspora, who um, they made a joke about them publicly. And that was done in Junkanoo celebrations that were held in Virginia, in the Caribbean, all over. Now you get to this moment of emancipation and you see this same practice with Tulalu, where men and women gathered and they sang this phrase, Tulalu, go hunt your lover, Tulalu, go find your lover, Tulalu. And it was done in jest towards white citizens teasing out their cultural practices, their form of courtship, their just being. And that was what many people did when they gathered around that 4th of July. It was not the only thing they did, but it was one of the activities that they did. And you can imagine having been um, in bondage for so long, It, in some ways it's a release. It's a release. You think of these people who don't go back for retribution, but this was an opportunity for them to release. Yeah, starting in 1881, the Charleston city leaders pushed uh, Tulalu to parks further and further and further away from downtown till finally in 1886, they just removed it from the peninsula altogether. And, and bit by bit, what seemed like a celebratory move of the Union victory in the Civil War and being emancipated just starts to very quickly, I mean, we're talking about a decade that is at least semi-idyllic for some African-Americans. And it seems so odd to modern sensibilities that people died brutally in what was a, a brutal civil war and was done on the Union side on behalf of freeing black men, women, and children. But so quickly that was set aside and was that what looking looking back and looking at the historical record um prejudice that overcame that or just people being tired from the war and not wanting to go back to that issue it seems so strange that people fought so hard uh lost limbs had uh, loved ones die for that cause which was really especially as you read that order that was given about people who were supposedly emancipated, really, it was just like it was almost given up on. Well, here's what I say to that. I'd hate to paint a broad stroke about all white Americans. There were even some who fought in the, for the Confederacy who turned around and said, this is not my fight. Um, there were different schools of thought but what we know is true in this nation is we're still wrestling with the issue of race. And people can have good intentions, 
but still have to search their soul for how they see another human. I know that folks gave their lives, and you're right, gave their limbs, gave their bodies, gave their soul, their blood, sweat, and tears to change a nation. And it's one thing to change a nation. It's also a thing to change within yourself, how you see another person. And there's some people who had already come to this sense of seeing African-Americans as humans, as Americans, as deserving of freedom, equality, and justice. But we still have an issue of dealing with race in this nation. And so that speech by Frederick Douglass, reading the primary source, the actual general order number three, and understanding how it's written, helps us to stop and really reflect on the meaning of freedom, of liberty, and its inclusive application. And that African-Americans, as we say in the museum, we tell the American story through the African-American lens. African-Americans are Americans and they are grateful and have been grateful for everything that it took to change this nation, even as they fought to change a war to keep the union together to a war for a fight for freedom. And so I think that this gives us a moment to stop and reflect on what does all of this mean and not just reflect on it, but act on it. How do we perfect this notion of democracy and really collectively celebrate what this nation was meant to be? Mary Elliott is a curator at Smithsonian's National Museum of African-American History and Culture. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you so much. You're listening to the Independence Day Special from the CBS Audio Network. This is the Independence Day Special from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. It wasn't that long ago that the national symbol of the United States, the bald eagle, was on the verge of extinction. In 1972, in an effort to preserve the endangered species, the United States banned the use of the pesticide DDT, which had been determined to be a significant contributor to the decline of the eagle population. In 1979, there were believed to be fewer than 1,000 breeding pairs of eagles in the lower 48 states. That same year, Charles Kuralt debuted as the host of a new weekly television program, CBS Sunday Morning. And in the premiere episode, he focused on the plight of the American bald eagle. Someday, if you are in the right place, and if you are lucky, you will look up and see an eagle on the wing. It's a sight to stop your heart. I've seen bald eagles in Alaska, where they are threatened, and in Wyoming, where they are threatened, and in New England, where they are threatened to the edge of extinction. The national bird is an endangered species. Lem Tucker has been in Maine looking at eagles. Eagles have always fascinated people. Ancient Romans worshiped them. Isaiah admonished that those who waited upon the Lord would mount up with wings as eagles. Unique to North America is the bald eagle. Since 1782, even before there was a constitution, it has stood as the symbol of the United States. No thanks to Ben Franklin, who thought the bird of prey of such terrible moral character that he pushed for the turkey as the nation's emblem. Usually wise old Ben lost that one, and so in one form or another, the bald eagle has come to mean the United States of America. 
Once, there were tens of thousands of them. And no one seems to know just when their numbers began declining, but since World War II, they have disappeared at a devastating rate. Partly because what is often good for men, or at least seems so at the time, is disastrous for wildlife. Take pesticides, especially DDT. After years of use, it began to permeate the food chain of egos. Before long, their bodies were so contaminated that mating for some produced only infertile eggs. Others gave up even trying. This is Cobbs Cook Bay in Maine. In one way or another, more than 25% of all the bald eagles left in the northeastern United States depend on the land in and around this area for their own survival. That's because this is one of the few shoreline areas still relatively undisturbed by man. But now, men and eagles are engaged in a fight for this area, and so far, the eagles are winning. And when the eagles did. In 1983, the Pittington Company dropped its efforts to build the refinery in Cobbscook Bay. Today, Cobbscook Bay has more pairs of eagles per square mile than any other location in Maine. The bald eagle was taken off the threatened and endangered wildlife list in 2007, with more than 15,000 nesting pairs estimated to be living in the lower 48 states. This has been the Independence Day special from the CBS Audio Network, produced by District Productive and Paul Woody Woodhull. I'm Gil Gross. Hey, it's Matt Norlander with the CBS Sports Eye on College Basketball podcast, and it is tournament time, people. So listen to the one podcast that will cover every upset, Cinderella, Bracket Buster Sleeper. We've got it all covered, every round, reaction shows, all the way up through the championship game in Glendale, Arizona. To find us, search Eye on College Basketball podcast wherever you get your podcasts.